Chippy was a parakeet. One second, Chippy was perched peacefully in his cage. The next moment, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose, and she stuck it in the cage, and then the phone rang, and she turned to pick it up. She barely said hello, and (laughs) Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum and opened the bag and there was Chippy, still alive, but as you can imagine, stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and she raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet and held Chippy under the running water. And then realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer and blasted Chippy with hot air. Poor Chippy never knew What hit him? A few days after the trauma, the person that had called on the phone called back to see how Chippy was doing. Well, Chippy's owner replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. It's not hard to see why Chippy was sucked in and washed up and blown over, and that's enough, Max Lucado says, to steal the song from the stoutest heart. (laughs) And I think sometimes we can relate to that. We we feel like we've been sucked in and washed up and blown over and we deal with problems and pain and heartache and circumstances that we would never choose for ourselves. And so a lot of people, well, we just don't sing much anymore. I've seen you. I stand up here and I see you don't sing much. No, I'm just kidding. You do sing a lot in here. But many times life brings us down and it's difficult to do anything but just kind of take the next steps just survive and that's that's really where paul was living too we're going to look at at romans 8 beginning in verse 18 uh, and believe it or not you know we think of paul as this this apostle paul and he's this great awesome uh, you know uh, missionary and he's planted all these churches and doing all these things but but paul's life was not an easy life uh we we get the best picture of that in a concise place, right in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul actually lists a lot of the trials that, that he had gone through up to that point in his, in his ministry. He's writing this letter to the, the church in Corinth, and he's actually fighting with some of these folks. Some of them are accusing him of kind of being this super apostle, and ooh, isn't Paul so great? Uh, we're better than him. And Paul says, you know what? I've, I've really kind of dealt with a lot of stuff. And so 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, he's actually listing some of these things that he's gone through. I, I, I want us to look at that real quick just to just to realize Paul says I've worked much harder been in prison more frequently been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one three times I was beaten with rods once I was pelted with stones three times I was shipwrecked I spent a day and a, a night and a day in the open sea I've been constantly on the move I've been da- in danger from rivers in danger from bandits in danger from my fellow Jews in danger from Gentiles in danger in the city in danger in the country in danger at sea and in danger from false believers Do you think maybe he was in danger a little bit He says, I've labored and I've toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all 
the churches. Paul knew about pain and suffering. In the next chapter of 2 Corinthians, he talks about his thorn in the flesh. Maybe you've heard of this, uh, what he describes as a messenger of Satan to torment him. And God decided not to take that away, but he continued to, uh, to deal with this torment. All of this happened before Romans was written. So when Paul is writing to Romans, what we're going to read here in just a second, he's, he's, he's writing uh, as, I mean, when we, when we read this, we're going to be hearing from an expert on suffering. He's been through it. He knows what it is. And yet he says, and let's look beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. He says, I consider our present sufferings, the list we just read and then some, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Big passage, whole lot of stuff there. Paul starts right out of the chute. He he talks about our current sufferings. And he's not just saying, well, my current sufferings. He's saying our, like this world that we live in. And so even today, as as his words ring true in our lives, we go, yeah, you know what? There are some sufferings that are pretty current in our lives. We live in a fallen, sinful world. There's pain. We deal with problems and difficulty. And Paul says that none of that, though, can compare to the glory that's coming. So there's this bad stuff, but man, uh, all this is going to far outweigh that. He says there's hope, that there's hope in Jesus, and that we will experience it through the presence of the Holy Spirit, and so we can endure through our suffering. Of course, as we think about uh, suffering, uh, the, the question that is asked time and time again is why, right? Why in the world is there pain and suffering? Why is this happening to me? Uh, can't God do something here? It's the question that Mary and Martha, uh, with this story of Lazarus, they both had, right? Jesus didn't show up, and Lazarus died. And, uh, and, and so they're saying, why in the world couldn't Jesus have just come and taken care of this? So I, I want us to explore that. Why do we deal with this suffering, all of our sufferings that Paul talks about. And really, the biggest answer, the biggest reason that people suffer with, uh, with pain and uh, heartache and disappointment and even death, the whole answer is summed up in sin. That's, that's the reason why. It doesn't make it necessarily any easier to deal with, but 
It's sin. The Bible tells us, and we've, we've seen it several times through Romans already, that Adam and Eve sinned, and when they did, death entered the world. And, and so I want you to realize right up front here, death was never part of the plan, right? Uh, death is a wage earned by sin. The wages of sin is death, we already saw in Romans chapter 6. So uh, the, death was never part of the plan. Death and all the pain and suffering that comes with it is in the world because of sin. Well, why doesn't God just make us so we don't sin? I mean, that would be pretty easy, right? Just God just says, well, just do the right thing, and he'll zap it into us, and that's great. Well, it all comes down to that issue of free will, right? And uh, uh, if, if God created us to love us and for us to love him back, but love uh, is not really love unless there's the possibility not to love. I know we're getting pretty deep here, so follow with me here. But I can't really love you if I have to love you, right? Uh, I have to have the choice to not to love you and choose to love you. Then there's meaning and purpose behind it. If I'm just a robot that's programmed to love, then that's just just a program running in the background. If I must love you, then love means nothing. Inherent in loving is the will to choose it or not to choose it. And so when God created us, to be beings that can love him, there's also the possibility of us choosing not to love him. God gave us that choice to love him back, and we've not necessarily chosen well. We've talked about this in Romans before. Adam and Eve sinned, and and so every generation after them is born with original sin. Uh, The world is, as it says here in our passage in verses 22 and 23, uh, groaning. The world is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. I cannot personally relate to that, but I know many of you can. And I hear that I'm glad that I don't have to, right? But some of you know exactly what that means, groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Part of the answer to our questions of of why there is suffering is that we live in a sinful world. This is not heaven. (laughs) We will not be satisfied here. We will not be fulfilled here. This world is not our home. And so sin and pain and sorrow and death are all part of living in a fallen world. Sin has consequences. Much of the pain and suffering that we face in life is a direct or indirect result of, of ours or someone else's sin. I'm, uh, I'm not much of a fisherman. I'm sure some of you are. Even if you're not, you're probably better than me. Um, I, uh, you know, my kids were this big. You guys remember, I would, we would go fishing at least once or twice, right? And we'd go to the, the pond and we, we drowned a lot of worms is what we did. That's what we did. We, uh, I think in the whole, in our whole, uh, you know, whole time growing up, we'd go and, uh, we'd dig up the worms and we'd go and we'd fish and I think we caught one fish and I think Aunt Beth caught that fish, right? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't even me or any of the kids. Uh, but, uh, anyway, uh, <sighs> Not much of a fisherman, but years ago, we before we even lived here, uh, a friend uh, a friend invited me to go fishing on a lake. And he had a boat, and uh, it was going to be cool. And I had just gotten a fishing pole, and this was before I knew that I was no good. And uh, and and so we we uh, he he pulled up, and uh, you know, put my uh, fishing pole in my tackle box. Uh, I get. I mean, it had a couple of lures and some hooks in it, and uh, put them in the in the uh, the the boat, and then we took off down the highway to uh, head to the lake to go fishing for the afternoon. It was, was going to be fun, cool, exciting. Uh, about halfway there, my friend looks in the rearview mirror and he says, "Uh oh," and I looked back, and there's all this, I don't know, stuff kind of piling up out of the back of the. Uh, 
out of the back of the boat. And so he pulls over, and uh, we went back there, and I hadn't ever locked in the, the reel, I guess, on the, and so all my fishing line just... I mean, it was like... I mean, I don't know how much line is on a, on a reel. I don't even know if I'm using the right terms. Uh, it's pretty funny. Uh, but I, I mean, there had to have been like 50 to 75 yards of, uh, of line that we cut off before we even got into the water that day. It was just, just crazy. I mean, just all this tangled, knotted, all this stuff. And it, it, completely unusable. And, and I guess that's what comes to mind, that knotted, twisted mass of fishing line uh, comes to mind when I think about what many of us have done to our lives. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, we drink too much or we gamble compulsively or we allow pornography to affect our, our lives. We drive too fast. We work long hours. We, we, we spend money we don't have and we can't possibly repay. We fight with our spouse and our kids and we create misery in our home. We toy with temptation. We give in and, and, and we break the commands of God. And then when the true wages for those actions come... When the trouble hits, we say, why me, Lord? And we're the one that tangled it all up in the first place, right? Sometimes the sin is our fault. And the consequences that we, that we pay for those things, the suffering is a natural consequence of our own poor choices. But, you say, I already hear you in your mind, yeah, but not all the time. I mean, there's not everything that we suffer is, is my fault. There are things that come on me that, uh, that, that, that there's, there's no way that I caused that. Sure, there's a lot of suffering that we pay for that is a result of other people's sin, right? The abused child or the family killed by a drunk driver or, or millions of babies aborted. The, 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 the cause of that suffering is still sin, but it's, it's not the sin of the one that's paying the consequences. Bottom line is sin brings suffering. So then, my question is, well, why doesn't God stop it? Why, he can, he can stop the, the consequences. I mean, God has intervened. We've seen that. I mean, in the Old Testament, we see that God intervenes at, uh, for His people and, and, and has, uh, heals people and, and brings about good results and all those kinds of things. If, uh, as, as they align themselves with Him, then He stops the, the consequences. We see Jesus, uh, you know, over and over again. I, I mean, it's, uh, story after story through the Gospels of His, of His intervening on other people's behalf and healing and, and supernatural, uh, activity in people's lives, even in to the book of Acts, we see that where, where people are being healed and, and brought to faith and it's a supernatural thing. And So then we wonder, why doesn't God do that for us when we ask? Believe it or not, why doesn't God do that? He, the reason is to bring about good because God has a plan and we can trust him. Now, you can write those in the blanks without really feeling it yet because uh, we're going to unpack that a little bit because that might be a little bit hard to swallow. Why does God allow these things into our lives to bring about good? Because he has a plan and we can trust him. We read this passage, and, and it's really literally littered uh, throughout uh, uh, this passage of, of problems and things that are going on in the world that are that are difficult. We already talked about in verse 18, our present sufferings, Paul talks about. In verse 20, he's talking about all this frustration that's going on. Uh, in verse 21, he's describing this creation that is in decay. Uh, in verse 22, he's talking about creation. All of creation is groaning. Uh, verse 23, he's talking about our own bodies and how we're deteriorating. Uh, verse 20, 23 is also talking about our 
our groaning. Uh, then, then verse 26 talks about our weaknesses. And uh, verse 20, 26 also talks about the Spirit is actually groaning for us. And, and then uh, also that, that we have difficulty praying through all of this. And I mean, it's a, it's a big list of problems. We can look through that and go, oh man, things are, things are kind of going bad. Any one of those things could, could, could seemingly hinder the plans of God. And yet the key verse in this whole passage is verse 28, which says that in all things, even, even those things, even the difficult things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. All these things in this list, even, even pain and suffering and difficulty and heartache, God uses to bring good. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, I want you to hear, I, I didn't say that suffering and pain are good, but God works with those hard things and brings about good. Maybe the best analogy I've ever heard in making sense of all this comes, uh, comes from the kitchen. Uh, and what analogy wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be good if we're, uh, if we're talking about cake? Go ahead and go to that picture. Oh, isn't that great? Mmm. Oh. Good stuff, right? A gift from God overcomes many, many suffering and much pain, and so we can just, that's the sermon right there. No. Cake is a, is a great thing, uh, but have you ever tasted the ingredients that, uh, that come along, or they, that go into cake? Have you tasted them individually? So, you probably have some. You'd see pictures of, uh, there's, there's baking powder right up there at the top. Have you ever taken a good scoop of baking powder and, I was going to call, I have all these things up here and call for volunteers this morning, but I thought maybe pictures would be better. Um, okay, so, so what about a raw egg? Have you ever like just, you know, drunk down a raw egg? Some of you probably have. That's a oh, good, powerful, rocky, Balboa kind of thing to do, right? Ah, me, not so much. Uh, I don't know, even cocoa. We got some, some cocoa over here, but if you just, just like get some powder at it, just, you're not, not, not great. Uh, go ahead to the next one. Uh, what do we got there? Sugar. Well, okay, we can eat sugar, but I mean, if you take that whole thing and just dump sugar down, uh, that's still a little bit overwhelming, right? Um, uh, the next one, we got oil. So, uh, have you ever, like, just drunk some vegetable oil? Mmm, good stuff. You're not hungry anymore, are you? No. Uh, let's see, we got, uh, some flour, I think, yeah? So, have you ever just dipped your finger in the flour and just licked it up and just some regular good old flour? Uh, I think there might be one more there. Well, water, okay, so we can drink the water. But, but even water, I mean, as, sometimes, you know, water is a refreshing, you know, we, you work out or you're, you're really thirsty, you drink down some water and that's great, but it's really, I mean, it's nothing to write home about, right? I mean, you're not like, oh, I had the best water yesterday, you know? Uh, you might say I had the best cake yesterday, but you know, the best cup of water, just one, oh, it's just great. And yet, you put all those things together, and probably a few more things, but you put all those things together, and, and, and you mix them together in just the right amounts, and put it in the oven for, for just the right amount, and out comes an amazing, tasty, wonderful bite of heaven, right? Cake. If I judge the entire cake by tasting each of the ingredients separately, it's going to be pretty awful. Oh, that's going to be a bad cake. Oh, I can't believe that. But the final result, after all the mixing and the baking, is a wonderful result, right? It's good. And I think you probably see the analogy to Romans 8.28. 
The individual ingredients of our lives, including the, the, including, including the suffering and the trials, the raw eggs and the, and the baking powder of, of, uh, of our lives. They're not necessarily delicious. They're not desirable. We would never choose to just fill ourselves with those things. In, in reality, they can actually taste pretty, pretty bland or bitter or downright awful. But God is capable of carefully measuring out and mixing up those ingredients in order to produce a final product that is what Paul says he describes as good. He's not asking that we see each individual event or circumstance of our life as wonderful, but he does expect us to trust that he is at work even in those events and will use them in concert with everything else in our life, all things, for our very best good. This verse is often misquoted. Uh, Usually something on the lines of everything happens for a reason. You've heard that, right? Um, this is not everything happens for a reason. Uh, I, I saw a sign not so long ago that said everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is uh, you did something really stupid. <laughs> um, this is not saying that, uh, that, that there's this yin and yang in life and that, that good karma follows us and, and uh, that, that the world will work itself out in the end and everything happens uh, for a reason and it all just kind of happened. Uh, go on to that next one there, there, Kevin. This is not everything happens for a reason. This is God working on your behalf because you love him. All things work together for good to those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. It's not just that, oh, this some mystical something or other, it'll all work out. No, it's a trust specifically and completely in God who is working, even when you don't see that he's working. He is working on your behalf to bring about good as we love him. So the question again, why doesn't God deliver us from pain and suffering? To bring about good, because he has a plan and we can trust him. As hard and as difficult as that is to to say in the moments of difficulty and suffering and pain, we can still trust that God is working all things together. There there are other things in this passage. We had quite a list of some negative things, but there certainly are some positive things as well. Not only is there pain and suffering, but but there's glory coming, Paul says. And and that glory is going to far outweigh the sufferings that we're we're involved in. He says in verse 19 that that there's this eager expectation of awaiting him uh, to, to, to intervene and to come. There's freedom coming in verse 21. There's hope in verses 24 and 25. Uh, the, the Spirit is helping us when we're weak in verse 26. The Spirit is actually praying for us when we can't pray for ourselves. In all things, God works for good. It's not that each thing in and of itself is good, but in all things, God is working to bring about good. And, and there's a difference there. You can see that that difference. This This doesn't say that I should say that it's good, if my leg gets broken or my house burns down or I'm robbed and beaten or my child dies. But it does say that God will use those events and weave them together with every other facet of my life in order to produce what he knows to be the very best for me, even if I can't see it right now. That was true for Mary and Martha when Lazarus got sick and died, right? Uh, Why weren't you here for us, Jesus? The answer, the, the, the big answer 
because he was working for their good. He had a bigger plan in mind. There was a purpose to be brought about. And, and, and so the answer then, uh, several days later, Lazarus came out, right? And he came back to life and lives were transformed. And, and, and days later, they were waving palm branches and they were celebrating. But the story doesn't end there because just a few days later, less than a week after that, they were looking up at their dying Savior on a cross and their hope had dried up. But Romans 8.28 is never more true than at the season of Easter. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And so what they saw as tragedy in the moment, we know to be the event that ushered in salvation for the entire world. What we will commemorate this, this Friday felt anything but good. Today we call it Good Friday because God was working even in the pain and suffering and death for our good. Do you, do you know that this morning? I, I think that's the key to applying these verses to our lives. We can talk about it. We can the, theologize about it. We can, uh, we can have discussions and, and philosophize, uh, philosophize about it and all those kinds of things. We can, we can, we can kind of get there. But first couple of words of verse 28, I think, are key to really applying these, this to our lives. And we... Know that in all things God works to the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And we know. Do you know? Are you convinced? Do you know in the soul, in your heart of hearts, in your soul of souls? Do you know? Even when you, you don't see that God is at work, uh, even when you have some doubts or, uh, I don't know, if you, if you don't know that God is at work, if you, if you have those doubts that God can do anything with the chaos and the pain and the trouble, of your life and of this world, then you won't see it and you'll suffer through it. But if you know, if deep down you are convinced that even though you may have questions and even though you may cry out and even though it hurts and you don't understand it and you're not sure what in the world is going on and you cry out and you say, why weren't you here, Jesus? But I know that in all things, even this thing, in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. If you know, if you're convinced, if you trust that he's still working, that he has good in mind, you can trust him. Even if the ingredients aren't what you choose, there's hope that the glory uh, that's coming is going to far outweigh the sufferings that you're walking through, that the taste of each one of these ingredients is is not really all that great, but there's hope that it's all going to come together to be good. Why does God allow pain and suffering? Believe it or not, to bring about good. Because he has a plan. We can trust him. 